Well, we turn now to the reading and the hearing of God's Word. You can see in your bulletin this morning that we're going to proceed in a way that's somewhat unusual for us in terms of how the worship service usually goes, although we have proceeded this way before in this sermon series on First and Second Samuel. This morning, we're going to use our two scripture readings in the worship service to cover one very long section in Second Samuel. We're going to cover chapters 13 and 14. I'll read 13 now, and then we'll turn to chapter 14 later. Remember where we left off in 2 Samuel, it's been quite a few weeks now, it's been almost a month I think. Where we left off was right after the episode with David and Uriah the Hittite and Uriah's wife Bathsheba. David sinned and sinned badly. Nathan, Nathan the prophet rebuked him and By God's grace, rebuked him effectively. David repented and repented deeply. God forgave him and forgave him everlastingly. Remember back in chapter 12, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Back in chapter 12, God forgave him. Although remember... Perfectly consistent with the fact that God forgave him, Nathan also made it clear to him that there were going to be real consequences of his sin, including consequences within his own household. That's where we left off last time. At the end of chapter 12, that brings us to this morning, the beginning of chapter 13. And in the interest of getting our bearings here in 2 Samuel, as we look forward, chapters 13 all the way down through 19, so a full seven chapters, are one long, awful, unfolding narrative that revolves around David's son Absalom. Chapters 13 all the way to 19 are the story of Absalom. It's the story of sin and rebellion. It's the story of sin avenged and rebellion put down. It's fair to say, and this is one of the reasons why we're taking two whole chapters this morning, it's fair to say that the theology isn't quite as dense in these chapters as it's been throughout First and Second Samuel leading up to this. And obviously that's not a criticism This is God's Word. It's simply to say that different sections of God's Word serve different purposes, even different sections within the same book. So we can say that. The theology isn't quite as dense in these chapters as it's been pretty much all the way as we've been making our way through 1 and 2 Samuel. For a while now, we've had gospel themes practically leaping off the page Sometimes several themes per page. And in part, that was attributable to the fact that God himself was, we might say, front and center as an active participant in the drama. 
So Samuel, Saul, David, Nathan, and God himself interacting with them. Speaking and acting on every page. Promising, threatening, fulfilling. These chapters, chapters 13 through 19, they're not quite like that. It's not that there's no theology in these chapters. It's not that God's not involved. It's just that the focus in these chapters that we're embarking on, the focus in these chapters is on the things that unfold here on planet Earth, causes and effects and actions and reactions that are visible to the naked eye. It's more like the book of Esther, where God is barely named, but you know that God is at work behind the veil and that the purposes of God are coming true on earth. That's, that's, why, that's what we've got here. And that's one reason why it's not a bad idea to read a longer section and to take in a more expansive view. And let me also say, it's a good thing to do that every once in a while in worship anyway. There's wisdom in that, taking in a longer section of Scripture. And Bible history books lend themselves to doing that now and then. In our denomination's book of church order, in the section that has chapter after chapter about worship, there's a chapter on preaching. And in our book of church order, it says this. Quote, the subject of a sermon should be some verse or verses of Scripture, and its object should be to explain, defend, and apply some part of the system of divine truth, or to point out the nature and state the bounds and obligation of some duty. A text should not be merely a motto. I love that. That's, that's good advice, and it's advice that has to be given, because that happens sometimes. A text should not be merely a motto, but should fairly contain the doctrine proposed to be handled in the sermon. And then it says this. It is proper also that large portions of Scripture be sometimes expounded and particularly improved for the instruction of the people in the meaning and the use of the sacred Scriptures. End quote. In other words... It's a good thing to do this every once in a while in worship, to read a large portion and to expound it. If you back up to the Westminster Directory for Public Worship from the 1640s, it says this, again, in the section on preaching. It says this, quote, If the sermon text be long, as in histories or parables, it sometimes must be. Then let the minister give a brief sum of it, looking diligently to the scope of the text and pointing at the chief heads and grounds of doctrine which he is to raise from it. End quote. In other words, when you're reading along in a Bible history book, there's a place for this. Taking a long text, taking in a more expansive view, thanks to that long text, and learning from it what's there to be learned. So that's what we're up to today. I'll read chapter 13 now, and then we'll get to chapter 14 later in our service. Listen now to the Word of God, 
2 Samuel 13, beginning at verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? 
Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all the servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my Lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my Lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young men who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept. Very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead.
And so ends chapter 13. We can admit, we have to admit, that is a hard chapter. (coughs) So we will pick up now in 2 Samuel where we left off a few minutes ago. Earlier in our service, I read for us chapter 13. Here now is chapter 14. The story of Absalom continues. Remember, it was three years that Absalom was away, having fled. Listen now, chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left And leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab 
with you in all this. The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one, not can, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is any guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. And so ends chapter 14. Absalom is brought back. At first, he's not brought back fully, that is to say, fully into the presence of the king. He gets Joab's attention in a rather extraordinary way, so as to press that demand. Absalom gets the message, delivers it to David. David acquiesces, brings Absalom back into his presence, and the king kissed Absalom, kissed his son. So we reach the end of the chapter 14, and there is a reunion of sorts. But as we'll see in the weeks to come, it's not much of a reunion. 
Certainly not a true and deep reconciliation. So ends chapter 14. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. For all that we've heard today. And we seek your face now. For again, these things were written for our instruction, and so it becomes our prayer, would you instruct us now? Not only, not only showing us the truth that's here to be learned, but stirring our hearts that we might embrace those truths and tremble and follow after you. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. So we've heard these two whole chapters now. Two hard chapters. What do we learn from them? Well, I want to highlight three lessons in particular. Three truths that are on display in these chapters that we've heard today. The first of them is God is faithful. Surely, that's one of the main lessons that we can, that we ought to learn from this. God is faithful. God keeps his word. And not just this morning, not just with these two chapters, 13 and 14. This is one of the main lessons that we can learn from this whole Absalom episode. Chapters 13 through 19, God is faithful. God is true to his word. So, I may be saying this a few more times over the next few Sundays. This is a running theme. Even if God is barely named in these chapters, even if he's not front and center as an active participant in the drama the way he has been, make no mistake, this is the word of the Lord coming true. And I say that because remember what God said to David in the previous chapter, chapter 12. Remember, Nathan rebuked him. Effectively, David repented. Truly, God forgave him everlastingly and yet perfectly consistent with that forgiveness. Nathan put David on notice. There are going to be consequences of your sin including consequences within your own household. Remember this from chapter 12. What did Nathan say to David? He said, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. 
That's what Nathan said to David back in chapter 12. That was the word of the Lord. Well, here in chapter 13 and 14 and following, that word of the Lord is coming true. Because God's faithful like that. Now, admittedly, this may not be the kind of divine faithfulness that a lot of people want to hear about. A lot of people wouldn't care to be reminded that God's a God who follows through on his threats and his chastisements, as well as his promises and his blessings, but he is. And we who know him, we who worship him, we who have given our lives to him, we ought to be glad that he is such a God. We wouldn't want it to be the case. Who in their right mind would want it to be the case that now and then God just forgets or reneges or changes his mind? Every glimpse we get in the Bible, even if it's a glimpse like this, every glimpse we get in the Bible of our God following through, Christian, That ought to be a comfort to your soul. Why? Because your everlasting destiny depends upon God being a God who follows through. Your destiny hangs on that. And so does our ability to get out of bed in the morning and to make it through the day. Especially living in a world where it feels like everything is giving way. Our God is faithful in shadows as well as in sunshine. Our God is faithful whether it feels like he's front and center. Or it's one of those times when especially we have to trust that he's reigning behind the veil. Ours is a God who follows through And that is something for us to hold on to. That's the first. God is faithful. And he's our God. That's the first. Here's a second truth that's on display in these chapters. And it is the truth that sin makes for misery. Sin makes for misery. That's another lesson that's on display in this whole sad Absalom episode for chapters to come. The sheer awfulness of the repercussions of David's sin. Just reading these chapters is hard. And it it was David's sin that led to this. Now we can admit, as we read these chapters... We're not in a position to draw direct lines, I mean direct lines of cause and effect, between David's sin in chapter 11 and everything that follows in his household, including everything that we heard this morning. We can admit that. In other words, it could be that some of these things would have happened anyway, Even if David had not sinned in the way that he did, we can acknowledge that. But it's enough to know that the Lord said, David, there's going to be violence and rebellion as a result of what you've done. And then it happened. 
It's enough to know that much. And knowing that much is plenty. At least it ought to be. To wake us up in the face of our own temptations. Sin makes for misery. And think about it. That's true in part. And we've seen this before in David's own story. That's true in part because sin can lead to more sin. That only makes things worse. Remember, that was one of the sad principles that was on display in David's fall in chapter 11. He kept adding sin to sin and making it, and making it worse. So that the misery kept mounting. Now his own children are doing the same thing. Let it be a wake-up call for us today, brothers and sisters. Let it make us wary in the face of our own temptations. Sin makes for misery. And... And it was his own children. That brings us to the third point, the last point that I, I want to highlight here. The second was sin makes for misery. Here's the third. Sin makes for misery close to home. And not just close to home, but at times at home, in our own homes, under our own roofs. That's one more lesson to learn here. There's something terribly, chillingly fitting about what David brings back upon himself when you think about the sin, the sins that he committed back in chapter 11. Something terribly fitting about it. Think about it. David's sin was to ruin somebody else's household. Well, then it's a fitting outcome that the waves of ruin that David set in motion, waves that went out and washed over and drowned the household of Uriah the Hittite, fitting that those same waves have now come back to wash over and wreck his own. And, and we all know something of this. It, it's one thing to read about sin and misery in the newspaper, in somebody else's life. It's one thing to hear about it in the lives of your neighbors down the street. But it is an exquisite kind of pain when it's under your own roof, when it's between husbands and wives, parents and children, brothers and sisters. That's the worst when it comes home like that. And those are the waves that are washing over David now. So one of the ways we can love and serve and guard our own household is to live lives of uprightness and integrity so that we don't cause those waves that might come back and come crashing down on people we claim to love. That's when that exquisite pain has become shared pain. And what makes it even more painful is the thought that we were responsible for setting it in motion. 
We were the ones who inflicted it on them. God help us. God have mercy. May it never be. So lessons to learn from these chapters. God is faithful. Sin makes for misery. Sin makes for misery close to home. Every Sunday we have the Lord's Supper. After the sermon, this Sunday's not going to be any different. There are some Sundays when we're practically running to the table because the sermon was hard. Today might be a Sunday like that for you. It's not pleasant to read these chapters. It's not altogether bright to learn these lessons, but we can always, always run into the arms of our Savior. We can always commune with Him and find mercy in Him. And today we will. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we worship you today. The God who has spoken these things. And what we've heard today is a reminder of what you're like. You are faithful. And though this is a sobering glimpse of your faithfulness, we wouldn't want you to be any other way. We, we rest in this. Though your ways can be hard, at times mysterious, so high above us, still we rest in this, that you are a God who follows through. So may we tremble at the threatenings of your word and rejoice in the promises, we who are the people of promise. And we pray that you would help us to take to heart today what sin is like, what it leads to. It makes for misery. It can even make for misery at home. Father, would you make us wary then in the face of temptation that it might not be said of us. We thank you for Christ in whom there is abundant mercy, mercy that is greater than all our sins. And we pray in his name. Amen.